Those of you who have been here Sunday by Sunday have been listening to us as we have tried to teach about some encounters with Jesus, some which led to conversion, and some where others turned sadly away. The Gospel of John, of course, is tremendously important. You will remember that I pointed out when we spoke about Nicodemus two Sundays ago, and then when John Akers so brilliantly uh, led you last week in considering the grace and the growth and the glory that comes to a believer. You will remember that we saw that the purpose of the Gospel of John was designed to increase in us faith and to lead us to a belief in Jesus Christ as the Son of God. He states the plan and the purpose of his book in the 30th and 31st verses of the 20th chapter. Many other signs, therefore, Jesus also performed in the presence of his disciples, which are not written in this book. But these have been written that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that believing you might have life through his name. And then when we looked at the account of the young man who was blind, you remember the poor man upon whom Jesus made some clay out of spittle and placed it upon his eyes and told him to go and wash in the pool of Siloam. And he went and washed and came away seeing. And you will remember that the Pharisees entered into a bitter dialogue with this young man, trying to shake his faith in Jesus Christ. You remember that I told you then that when he was on his way to wash, that there might have been friends from the University of Jerusalem who could have said to him, Why don't you know that it's no use to place mud on your eyes? This is foolish. And the man said, What have I got to lose? I've been blind all my life, ever since I was born. And I heard a voice such as I never heard the voice of any other person. And he told me to go wash in the pool of Siloam. And so I'm going to obey him. I'm not learned like you are. I'm going to obey him. And he went and he obeyed. And when he washed and the water fell from his face, he looked and saw the blue of the sky. He saw perhaps his friend standing by him who had led him out to the pool so that he could wash and how his heart was filled with joy. Now all of this had begun because Jesus had made a great statement. You shall know the truth, and the truth shall make you free. And the Pharisees had replied, We have never been in bondage to any man, which is really a sort of joke, because the Jews have been in bondage practically ever since they existed, except for the brief period of time when David reigned. And Jesus counters by teaching them that not only you shall know the truth and the truth shall make you free, but you shall see the light and the light shall make you see. And he refers to himself as that light. And you remember that they cast this man out of the synagogue. And when Jesus heard that they had cast him out, he sought out this young man and found him. And I wanted to point that out because this whole marvelous 10th chapter of John, which I hope you will read at your leisure in your devotions tonight, will show you how much this must have meant to that young man. Because these Pharisees cast him out of the synagogue and Jesus found him and led him into a faith in him. He's the good shepherd. This man heard his voice. And he obeyed the voice of Jesus. And when they cast him out of the synagogue, Jesus found him.
and asked him if he believed in the Son of Man, that is, the Messiah. And he said, Tell me who he is, Lord. And Jesus said, I that speak to thee am he. And he bowed and worshipped him, and he believed in Jesus as the Son of God. Now, immediately after this, Jesus launched into this great discourse of his about the Good Shepherd. I almost call the title of the sermon today, Shepherd One. I did that because the Pope's airplane, while he is visiting the United States, has been designated by the Secret Service as Shepherd One. A good Catholic would see it that way. But I'm sure that Pope uh, John Paul, whom I happen to admire very much, and one of my sons has gone all the way to Washington to look at him, uh, he, uh, he is a good Pope. And I think he would agree uh, with me that there is really only, 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 only one shepherd one. And that's Jesus Christ. He refers to himself as the good shepherd who lays down his life for the sheep. In the epistle to the Hebrews, in that great benediction, he is called the great shepherd of the sheep. And in the first letter of Peter, Peter himself says of Jesus that he is the chief shepherd of the sheep who will come again. And so we see him as the good shepherd, the great shepherd, and the chief shepherd. Now here he begins to speak uh, to people like this Jewish man who had been cast out and to these others who were there present. And he says to them, I, I am the good shepherd. I am the good shepherd, says Jesus, and all who ever came before me are thieves and robbers. He says, I am the good shepherd. And the good shepherd will lay down his life for the sheep. He uses the metaphor of being the door of the sheep because they would build an enclosure and then they would put on top of the enclosure briars or things to keep people from crawling over into the enclosure and stealing the sheep away. And Jesus knew that the Pharisees and the Sadducees were often in this religious business for money and that they were covetous and that they were very selfish and that they really weren't concerned about this poor blind man and that they really hated Jesus when he saw that woman of Samaria who had been married five times and was living with a man who was not her husband and revealed to her that he was the Messiah. So they didn't really like Jesus at all. This, by this time, the great controversy is heated up. And so Jesus will begin to refer to himself as the Good Shepherd. Now, back in the Old Testament, if you read it carefully, Abraham had something to do with sheep. We know that Jacob had something to do with sheep. We know that Moses was keeping Jethro's sheep, and it was during that experience as a shepherd that he saw a burning bush, and the voice of God spoke to him and called him. And of course we know that Ezekiel talked about sheep and shepherd, and Jeremiah talked about sheep and shepherd. And of course the shepherd king in the Old Testament, when Samuel went to find a king for Israel, he saw a ruddy-faced boy named David. David, who would later write the 23rd Psalm, and that first beautiful 
hymn which we sung this morning is a Christianized version of the 23rd Psalm. And now Jesus applies this to himself as the good shepherd. The good shepherd, and the, it's interesting, the word good here is, in Greek, it's kalos, not agathos. When the rich young ruler came to Jesus, he used the word agathos. Um, that's good in a sort of idealistic sense of the word. But here the word kalos means efficient. In other words, he's a good shepherd who doesn't lose his sheep. If I talk about a, a pass receiver who's going to catch a football and I say he's a good receiver, I'm not telling you about his character. I'm telling you he's an efficient pass receiver. Now here Jesus says, I am the good shepherd. I don't lose my sheep. I go after them and I find them and I bring them back to the fold. All that ever came before me, now I don't think he's talking about Moses and Jeremiah and Ezekiel and the greats of the Old Testament. He's thinking about these scribes and Pharisees or thieves and robbers, but the sheep did not hear them. In the eastern countries, it's a pastoral land, not an agricultural land. And so they grow sheep and they grow them chiefly for the wool. And as a result, they did in the time of Jesus, and as a result, they spent much time with the sheep. Yesterday I talked with uh, my student helper who is from Egypt, and I asked him about the Bedouin shepherds. And he and I discussed together how these uh, shepherds uh, could come and call their sheep by name. And they could recognize the voice of their shepherd and come and follow their shepherd. And some Bible scholars have even gone to these shepherds and have put on the shepherd's clothes and changed clothing with the shepherd and had gone off at a distance and called the sheep but the sheep wouldn't hear them and wouldn't come and follow them for as Jesus said they will not hear the voice of a stranger but when the shepherd whose voice they understood and knew even though he was in a different garb called to them they would come and follow that shepherd now are you listening for the good shepherd's voice are you listening for the voice of Jesus the thief comes but for to steal and to kill and to destroy. There are many voices that speak to young people today. I think of a young woman who is talked into immorality by some specious reasoning of other people. And when sin has been committed in this particular way, deep down inside there is the sense that something has been stolen, something has been destroyed, something has been killed inside me. Jesus will not lead you that way. Jesus will lead you in the secure way. And if you'll follow him and be obedient to him, he will forgive you for your sins, but he will call sin, sin and lead you in the path of virtue. I am the good shepherd. And he says, the good shepherd giveth his life for the sheep. And he uses the metaphor of being the door of the sheep. Jesus is always the door. He is the door by whom we may come to God. And it's very important for us to remember this. That shepherd would put his own body down in the enclosure. And in order to get into that sheepfold, 
unless you climbed over the wall like a thief or a robber. You had to come across the body of the shepherd. And that's what Jesus is saying. I am the good shepherd that giveth his life for the sheep. I'm the door. And by putting my body there, you come over my body and you come into life. He's not a hireling. He is the good shepherd. And he is calling us to come to him. I love that line in the Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe by C.S. Lewis. No, it's in the silver chair where Jill has the theophany and Aslan, the lion who represents Christ, is in back of her. And he tells her that there's no other stream that she can go to and drink. And he says he does not say it as if he were threatening or, if, or as if he were angry or as if he were boasting. He just said it. And that's exactly what C.S. Lewis is trying to get us to understand about Jesus Christ. When he claims to be the one way to God, he is not saying it threatening. He is not saying it boasting. He just says it because it's true. Because it's true. You must come by him. Now he calls us and when we hear him and we come to him, he gives to us security. He gives to us security and he brings to us salvation and that salvation is brought to us through him and through his own death on the cross. That to me is the most incredible thing in the whole world and that's what must have been incredible to the disciples. The first of the... You see, they had seen Jesus before. They had watched him see this blind man and touch him and make the blind man see. They had seen Jesus go to a leper who was screaming out, unclean, unclean, trying to get people to run away from him, lest he contaminate them. And Jesus would fearlessly walk up and touch the person, and he would be made whole, completely. They had watched Jesus see a man that was crippled, and speak a word, and automatically those limbs straightened out and strengthened, and he jumped up with joy. They had seen Jesus stop a funeral procession with people weeping and a young boy being carried out, the only son of his widowed mother, to be buried. And Jesus called him back from death. And so it's incredible to the disciples that Jesus, should actually submit to being killed. And that's why they're so slow at understanding this. When he has to tell them that he is the good shepherd who will lay down his life for the sheep. But that's what this communion service is about. And that's what it's meant to tell us today. That the good shepherd has laid down his life for the sheep. In just a few moments, when we are singing the hymn, Just as I am without one plea, we will have a line in that hymn that says, O Lamb of God, I come. And he will not only be the good shepherd who calls you to him, but he will be the Lamb of God who offers his own body as the sacrifice whereby we may be redeemed.
Jesus Christ wants us to remember this. And that's why when the loaves of bread are picked up and broken, the emphasis is on the verb. This is my body broken for you. This is my blood which is poured out, which is shed for you. Love is a verb. And God has done something for us. And what he has done for us here is indicated that just as really as that bread is torn apart, was his body torn apart and nailed to a cross. And his disciples looked up there and they saw those precious hands that had done nothing but good, nailed to a cross, his body broken, his blood shed. And when he had instituted the Holy Supper that night, he took the Passover. And he took forever upon himself all of the guilt that you would ever commit and all of the sins of the whole world upon himself and became our sacrificial lamb. This is my body broken for you. This is my blood shed for you. Now I want to say a couple things about this. What does this do when we remember it today? The other night a Christian friend came by my house and I'd already gone to bed. He said, could I come with him to go and to tell a very sweet, dear Christian mother that her lovely Christian daughter had just been killed in an automobile accident. She didn't know a thing in the world about it. And when we went over to the house, all the lights were out. We rang the doorbell. We beat on the door. But we couldn't make her hear us because she's very old and her hearing is not good anymore and she was asleep. We had to go across the street and someone had to call and the telephone awakened her and she came to the door and so absolutely godless she thought we had simply come by to see about her because she hadn't felt well that day. We had to go into a sitting room and sit down. And then the dreadful news had to be told her that her daughter had been killed in an accident. And it took her breath away and she spoke spoke of how it grieved her soul. And then when we clutched her hands and prayed with her, she said, but I know she's saved. And I know she's with the Lord. And you see, even death, as hard and terrible as it is, has been conquered through what Jesus did when he died and rose again for us. There's a heavy line in that 10th chapter. I have the power to lay my life down and the power to take it up again. He lays it down for us and he takes it up again for us. And that makes him shepherd one in a way that no one else could ever be. He is our shepherd, the good shepherd who conquered for us the horrible pain that death brings to us. And then there's that sin problem that haunts me. My sins, which are many, 
are all washed away my sins, not in part but the whole. They are nailed to his cross, and I bear them no more. Praise the Lord, it is well with my soul. What can he do? His body was broken, his blood was shed, so that he might absorb in himself all of my sins. So that I won't have to be hassled by them. I know that God has delivered me through what his son has done at the cross. That's costly grace. We talked about that a few weeks ago. God's grace is a costly gift. And what cost God so much cannot be cheap for us. And that's why when we take this Holy Supper, we ourselves are entering into communion, koinonia. That's fellowship with him. We are entering into a fellowship with the Lord. We're eating his body and drinking his blood in a symbolic sense. Because we become his in a unique way. The word sacramentum, from which the word sacrament comes, is a sacred vow. The word Huguenot, which some of our French friends know, are people of the oath, people of the vow. When you take the Holy Supper, you're taking a vow to the Lord, and the Lord is taking a vow to you. And it's important to remember that. That's why Paul says, let a man examine himself, lest he eat or drink unworthily. When we do this, we examine ourselves so that we know that we're in the faith. So that we're willing to be Jesus men, Jesus women, Jesus young boys or girls or older people, that we belong to Jesus. And he is the Lord of the decision-making processes of our lives. And the sins which we have committed, we have laid upon him. And the sins which other people have committed against us, we're willing to let go of and let them go scot-free. Dr. John Redhead, who is known to many of you, used to tell the story of how out in New Zealand, a congregation of Christians who had once been barbarians, had met in a church for the Holy Supper, and in that particular church, an Anglican church, they came forward to the rail to take the communion. And when one man had come forward in a crowded church, he knelt with the other crowd of people that had come forward. And then suddenly he bristled and got up and left the communion rail and went back to his pew and sat down with a very stern face. And then they began to see his face transfixed and tears coursed down his face and his lips quivered. And he got back up again and he went back to the communion rail and he knelt and he took the symbols of the broken body and the shed blood of the Lord. And then he went to a different place in the church and sat down by a man who looked strange when he sat down beside him. And when the church was over, the parson asked him what had happened that morning. And he said, when I saw all the people go forward, I went forward. And when I knelt down, I realized that I was kneeling by the man who had murdered my father. And I hated him. 
and I couldn't take the supper. And I went back and sat in my pew, and I prayed, and I thought of three crosses, and I thought of that one on the center cross who prayed, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do to the ones who were killing him. And I knew that I had to let go and let him be forgiven. And I went back and took the Holy Supper. And then I went back and sat down by my brother in Christ. That's the transformation that takes place. That's costly, costly grace. And that costly grace that reaches us reaches us not only to deal with this problem of our sins and of death, but we are led to ultimate victory. There's one thing that we do not often emphasize in the Lord's Supper, and we should emphasize it more. And that is that we show forth the Lord's death till he come. He's coming back. And the elements today are the preachers. And if you partake of them in a sincere manner, you may have bread in your hand, but you'll have Christ in your heart. You may have a little cup of grape juice in your hand, but you'll have Christ in your heart. And just as really as you can see and taste those elements as absolutely really as that, will you one day be in heaven to celebrate forever with Jesus the joy of salvation. And so death and sin and its fears are taken away. And one day he's coming back, and we're to keep this peace in remembrance of him until he comes again. I can remember a time when I felt rather close to death myself, and I listened to B.J. Thomas sing a hymn, I guess it's a hymn by Pat Terry, called Home Where I Belong. They say that heaven's pretty and living here is too. But if they said that I would have to choose between the two, I'd go home, going home where I belong. Sometimes when I'm dreaming, it comes as no surprise that if you'll look and see that homesick feeling in my eyes, I'm going home, going home where I belong. While I'm here, I'll serve him gladly and sing him all these songs. I'm here, but not for long. When I'm feeling lonely and when I'm feeling blue, it's such a joy to know that I'm only passing through. I'm heading home, going home where I belong. One day I'll be sleeping when death knocks on my door. And I'll awake to find that I'm not homesick anymore, because I'll be home, home where I belong. Now then, until that day comes, we're to do what he says. Serve him gladly, singing all these songs. We're to be assured by what happens here today of the reality of our faith and to rejoice in it and get on with the business of living the Christian life day after day until he calls us to come to him. And that's important to remember too. 
The communion means that he has not left us alone and that he is with us. If you've never accepted Jesus Christ as your Savior, you could accept him this morning. He's the door, and the door is wide open. Come unto me, said all ye that are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn of me. No, you won't have it all the first minute, but you'll learn of him, for he is meek and lowly in heart, and you will find rest unto your soul. You can come to him while we're singing the hymn by which so many others have come to him. Eternal and ever gracious God, we give thee thanks for all the wonders of thy love, that thou hast brought us through the changes of this life to wait at this table at this present time, that in spite of our unworthiness thou hast opened for us this door of access into thy presence, that thou hast given us thy church to be our mother in the faith, thy word to be a lamp unto our feet, and this blessed sacrament to be a means of grace. We thank Thee, O God, that Thou hast made us as we are. We thank Thee for the goodness which haunts us even when we have sinned. We thank Thee for the ideals and the dreams which will never let us be. We thank Thee for the longings which lodge in our souls and in our hearts, that they are restless until they rest in Thee. We thank You, our Father, for the patience by which you have borne with us in all our sinning, and for the grace which is wide enough to cover every spot and stain, and for the love which will never let us go. We give thee thanks especially for Jesus Christ, our blessed Lord, 
that he who knew no sin was made sin for us, that he gave his life a ransom for many, a ransom for us as individuals, and that he was obedient even unto the death of the cross, that he loved us, and that he gave himself for us. And so we give you thanks for this bread and thanks for this cup. And we all pray in our hearts, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. Grant that this day, as we take these elements in our hands and on our lips, that thy peace and thy pardon may fill all our hearts and souls. Through Jesus Christ, our Lord. Amen. Be seated. Our Lord Jesus Christ, on the night in which he was betrayed, having given thanks and, and blessed and broken it, he gave the bread to his disciples. As I, ministering in his name, give this bread to you, saying, as Jesus said, Take, eat. This is my body, which is broken for you. This do in remembrance of me.
the same manner also, after they had supped, Jesus took the cup and he offered it to his disciples, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood, which is shed for the remission of sin. Take and drink ye all of it in remembrance of me.